0: The one to watch is Jessica Long swimming in lane four, the world record and Paralympic record holder. ...inside the final
1: ten, but the goal's going to go to Jessica Long, 65-63 for another world record.
0: I already felt so different, you know, being a girl with no legs and being adopted. It was like no one was like missing legs or an amputee and then on top of it was adopted. So those two things already felt like I stood out.
2: Welcome to Flame Bears, the women athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. I'm your host, Jamie. In this episode, we speak with 28-year-old Jessica Long, a naturalized American Paralympic swimmer from Bratsk, Russia. This girl is the real deal. Not only does she hold 14 world records and has competed at four, soon to be five Paralympic Games, She has 23 Paralympic medals, with 13 of them being gold. She's one of the most successful athletes in Paralympic Games history. She also has 30 medals from Worlds. Oh, all this, and she does it without the use of legs.
0: Hi, I'm Jessica Long. I'm a 13-time Paralympic gold medalist in swimming. Well, I always loved swimming. It was my favorite thing to do as a little girl just because I didn't have to wear prosthetic legs. So I think my earliest memory was maybe three years old in my grandparents backyard pool, but I actually joined a swim team when I was 10 years old and I still love it to this day.
2: Jessica was born with fibular hemimelia, which is why she had to get both of her legs amputated when she was 18 months old. I'd honestly never heard of this condition before, So I spoke with someone who specializes in working with children with fibular hemimelia.
1: My name is Dr. Claire Shannon and I am a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who specializes in reconstruction of congenital limb deficiencies and limb lengthening correction. So fibular hemimelia is a congenital limb deficiency syndrome it occurs about one in 40,000 births in children of all types and kinds and all sorts of backgrounds. So it's a very rare disorder. Most of the time, it's one side, so one leg is involved, but it can occur on both sides, which is even more rare. It is essentially a disruption of the cells that signal the growth in the limb. So in this case, in the leg. And what happens is that the fibula bone, which is the small bone on the outside part of the leg, either doesn't form completely or doesn't form at all, along with involvement of the knee, the ankle joint itself and the foot. So they can be missing toes. They can have toes that are stuck together called syndactyly. And then they can have deficiencies of the ligaments in the knee. And usually it comes with an ankle deformity and some of the bones in the foot can be stuck together in abnormal patterns. So it's a, it's a big spectrum of deformity that people with fibular hemamelia can be born with. So
2: Jessica had to learn quickly how to navigate a world she believes isn't made for people with disabilities. I asked her how this has shaped her life.
0: I was very mobile when I was a little girl. I was born without my lower legs. So I just always liked to be able to move. And I never wanted to sit still. That's why I got into sports. I love this idea of being a around others with legs. I also wanted to be like them. Yeah, so growing up without my legs, you know, I just knew that I was different. I've always said this, but you, you didn't have to tell a girl with no legs that she was different. I stood out, especially if we went to the grocery store, people would stare, adults would stare, kids would stare. And while that
2: must have been really traumatic for Jessica, Dr. Shannon weighs in on how having a limb difference at an early age can make people really
1: tough. I think there's been a lot of discussion, especially in the last few years, around the idea of grit, right? And around the idea of resilience. And I think that any kid with a congenital limb deficiency, any kid with a chronic medical condition um, or something that has made them a little different, I think that one of the things that's truly special about them is they are tough cookies.
2: Jessica certainly is. And she credits a lot of that to her upbringing in the face of those stairs,
0: No, I had awesome parents who taught me, you know, kids are curious, and it was so, it was really helpful. I've definitely taken that into account as I've gotten older, but as I've gotten older, if anything, I've realized that it's it's much harder with the adults. The adults are the ones that I get more comments from adults today about parking in a handicapped spot or about my legs and stuff than I did when I was little, which is so funny, but I think in a way really prepping me for all of that and just building confidence. And obviously sport plays a huge role in that. But I I did know I was different and I had a really hard time with it. And I think you don't really know where life is going to take you. And at that point in my life, I was having surgeries every couple months. So I just remember it feeling like, okay, I'm the girl with the legs and doing surgeries, which some of these surgeries were excruciating, very painful. Like I remember, you know, because I would have the bone cut back because I was still growing. And like the doctors would come in and like pull draining tubes out my legs. But it is cool to see everything come full circle. You know, I, I knew that if I had given up in those circumstances or those challenging moments of my life, like the surgery or learning to walk or getting a new set of prosthetics or really letting some comments affect me, I don't know where I would be in my life. You know, I just chose to always see the positive and push forward and If I was going to fall, I was going to fall forward.
2: And fall forward, she definitely did. Thanks to Jessica's positivity, we get to see her competing on the world stage. But Jessica's success hasn't just been because of her mentality. It's also thanks to her talent. So I wanted to see how she views ability and how it got her to where she is today.
0: I think... It's such a human right to have ability and to be mobile. That's how I'm taking it anyway, ability. It's really the freedom to just be, to do things in a society that's not necessarily made for people who were born with disabilities, right? I think that's one of the greatest things about the Paralympics is you have so many unique and amazing stories of overcoming obstacles and being in a world and fighting for change and fighting for the ability to just fit in and do normal things. But I love that. I love the tenacity of athletes and I love just the effort and just being a part of this world and, and especially sports. I think sports is a place that builds confidence
2: as an elite female Paralympian. I wanted to know what it means to Jessica to compete on that stage.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: It's just, it's like breaking barriers. Um, it's so cool. You know, it's so cool to to be surrounded um, by a community and also to know that there are so many female athletes that the way for me. And it's kind of like that ripple effect. Like, that's what I hope to continue to do for the next generation, um, because Paralympics is growing. And I love it. Like, I love when people understand and know what the Paralympics are, because there was a time when I was competing as a 12 year old or even a 16-year-old where people thought I was in the Special Olympics, which is an awesome organization, um, but we're so separate. And I think people need to understand that just even the word Paralympic, para just means parallel to the Olympic Games, Paralympics. We're, we're alongside the Olympics. We go two weeks after the Olympics. And I I was always a really feisty female athlete. I wanted people to know that I was just as good as the Olympic athletes. So I ended up training with bunch of Olympic athletes. Michael Phelps, you know, I'm from Baltimore. I got to train with that group. And I was the only girl without legs. But I think in a way, being a female, being a female athlete without legs in the Paralympics, there's so much that you represent. And I love that role, you know, that, that ambassador role. It's something that almost like pushes me to be better.
2: So let's go back to where it all started before all that gold and hear how a little person named Aaron Popovich. Aaron inspired a little girl.
0: I was a part of Paralympics when I was 10, and I made my first Paralympic Games when I was 12. In those two years, I was still very uncomfortable with being an amputee. Even in the summertime, I would wear long pants, I never wore shorts. So here I am at a, at, you know, just a local meet, I think it was like nationals, but there was only like maybe 150 swimmers. I just saw how everyone handled their so-called disability. They they didn't care, and here I was, 10, 11 years old, covering my legs, also having shells. I've always had realistic-looking legs, but I saw so much freedom and so much like confidence within these athletes for having pole legs or bone legs or whatever you wanna call it. But Erin is, she's a little person, and I don't know, there was just something about her that just she, the way that she carried herself on the pool deck, I think, really stuck out to me, and the fact that she came up and talked to me. She was a gold medalist. She didn't need to talk to me, the little eleven-year-old girl um, who was nervous. Erin
1: Popovich lane five, one zero. That is good. She just took to time, world and record. then of
0: course, you know, she was winning gold medals, and I got to be on um, her. I was her teammate in the 2004 Paralympic Games, which was my first game. And then we were on a relay together and got gold. So it was like I got gold with my hero. And I also too, you know, whenever anyone asks me that question, you know, I wanted to make sure to bring awareness to Paralympics because in my eyes, Erin Popovich is just as amazing as Michael Phelps. You know, she's still a 14-time gold medalist in the Paralympic world. She had sponsorships when no one was getting sponsorships. She was winning awards. So she was just someone I always looked up to. And she's actually still involved with the Paralympic movement. And it's so funny because I still get so nervous sometimes when I'm with her, like that little girl, that little 13, 14-year-old you know, Jessica, like still nervous. But she was also my competitor. So we raced in the 100 Brushstroke together, which is really cool.
2: While Erin may have been Jessica's role model in the world of swimming, Jessica has become a role model for countless young swimmers and girls across the world. I asked her why it's so important for her to be a role model for others.
0: I think it's really important. It's very real, right? As, you know, being a female athlete in a sport, like highlighting that, you know, I have a big back, but it's not big, it's strong. And like, you know, missing legs, that is an insecurity at times, even as I've gotten older, you know, it doesn't just go away, but surrounding yourself with strong women and having the freedom to talk about it, that not every day is perfect or not every day is like Instagram. And obviously I love sports because I think it just teaches you discipline and, and create friendships and consistency and, and a commitment. But um, I do think role models are huge in today's world, especially like what's happening
3: right now.
2: I sat down with someone who really knows Jessica to get her thoughts on why she's such a great role model.
3: My name is Julie Desalier, and I'm the current chief of Paralympic Sport at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. I have known Jessica Long since 2004 when she was 12 and made her very first Paralympic swimming team for the Athens Games. And at the time, I was the high performance director for paraswimming and the head coach for that 2004 Athens team. And obviously, I have a unique perspective having watching her grown up from that 12-year-old at her very first games into the young woman that she is today. But I think part of why she is such a great role model is she's very, very steadfast in her beliefs. There are things that are very important to her. Obviously, swimming is one of them, but other things such as her family and her faith are also, you know, very strong foundations of what she believes in. And I think that is is what makes her so inspiring is putting all of those things together.
2: I think it's hard for everyday people and fans to really get to know our world's best athletes. So I asked her, what does being a female athlete mean in real life? Like what's something people are not going to know that is a part of everyday Jessica Long's daily life?
0: I'm always training. I'm always thinking about training and swim meets. But at the same time, I have a really wonderful big family and I love balancing that out with my swimming. And it's taken me a long time to learn this, that like I love swimming, but it can't be my entire world. And I do believe sacrifice has to happen. But at the same time, you have to have a little bit of fun and you have to be able to enjoy life. That's probably one thing I could tell my younger self is that don't take this so seriously. Like, just have fun with it. But just in my my private life, I guess, I just I really enjoy um, spending time with my family, game nights, very competitive. But also just finding coffee shops and reevaluating my goals, I guess. I don't know. A lot of it's swimming. Can you tell me about your parents' role in your life? Yeah, I definitely feel like I had a really unrealistic life growing up, which is something I've really noticed as I've gotten older. Just this environment that my parents created for all six of us, because there were six of us kids. But I was adopted at 13 months, so my dad was the one that really wanted a larger family after they couldn't have kids for, I think, 10 years they tried. So he was the one in his like mid-30s, went to Russia to get me and another little boy, and then brought us here to the U.S., and I definitely think there's something with adoption where it's like almost a little harder to connect with your mom at times because your birth mom's the one that gave you up for adoption. So in a way, it's not like I don't have a great relationship with my mom. There's something about just your dad. He was awesome. You know, we would he drove me back and forth to swim practice. He would tuck me in every night because my mom would spend all day with us and that would mean homeschooling, swim practice, sports, you know, whatever we were into. And then when my dad came home from work, we actually would read books together. A lot of times I would just massage his head so I could stay up later. But it was funny because I guess not a lot of friends got tucked in, which I think was really nice because there were six of us kids because after they adopted us, they had two more. And I think it was a way of like spending quality time with each of the kids in a way. I'm really thankful that I was adopted in such a great family, but I also understand it's not the case for everyone. And what about your siblings? Amanda was the oldest. She was cute. She um, was like, was very bohemian. That's just kind of my memories of her. My parents turned our old house into a basement for the two oldest older kids. So they could come in and out with like, there was a side door. So once Steven, my second oldest got married at 18, he married like our pastor's daughter. I had another sister at the age of 11. So Sarah was really great. She knew me my whole life and that was really fun. Then there's Josh. Josh is super cool. Um, We later found out after he was adopted that he has fetal alcohol syndrome. So he'll probably always just kind of have the mind or just like the thought process of like a 17-year-old, which is so cute. Um, But he's Josh. He's so kind. And then Hannah. Hannah was the miracle baby. She was born on their anniversary after like 14 years of not being able to have kids. And Hannah was definitely confusing to me because I was like the baby baby. I liked attention. And all of a sudden, Hannah was born. and I was like, mm, I don't really if I like this little thing. Um, no, but Gracie was awesome. Um, so that completed our family of six. So there's four girls, two boys, sister-in-law. But yeah, we were just a family that got along. We had game nights every week.
2: You've also been pretty outspoken about your connection to God and specifically that that's something that came from your mom and your dad. How has that changed throughout your life? So it sounded that when you were younger, you weren't religious and that that's kind of morphed and changed as you've gotten older.
0: So it was definitely a part of our like everyday routine, just like you know talking about God or praying or just going to church on Sundays or youth groups and stuff. And it was really cool. Just my parents are awesome with just letting it be our own faith. You know, they were kind of like, well, this is what we believe in. And we, you know, we've done lots of research and, you know, this is kind of what we settled in on is just like a Christianity type of relationship with Christ. But yeah, I just remember being really confused that I could just be good enough. I don't know. I I just, that whole concept that just God came to, you know, die for us. And, you know, the whole idea of Christianity, I was like, I don't feel good enough for this and I don't want to be adopted into God's family. But it was awesome. Again, nothing was ever forced, you know, it was always, you know, if you want to believe, if you want to live this way, awesome. But like, it's also your choice and it wasn't really until I moved to Colorado that I was away from my security blanket, my family, that I really started to find my own faith. And it took a long time until I actually really accepted Christ as my own savior and just decided to live for him. And it really did become my own faith. I grew up in a really like strict Presbyterian church. And my parents are no longer even with that church, really. But I just had a really hard time. I don't know, just some of the stuff that they were teaching. It just never felt good enough. I think once I went to Colorado and I really learned this relationship with Christ and just a whole different way of viewing God and his love for me and just being forgiven. And because I think for so long, I just felt like I was on this like totem pole where I was like doing really, really well. And if I had a fight with my mom or dad, or like, I did something I would just drop and it was like, oh, well, this is exhausting. I'm never going to get to the top. But in Colorado, I was there for about three years and it took about three years of God really working in my life and my heart to just be like, I don't have to like just that I was enough. I just finally prayed and just accepted Christ into my heart for me.
2: I know you were born on a leap year and you've talked a little bit about this in some of your other interviews and specifically shared how it has impacted your sense of identity. So can you share a little bit about this?
0: I already felt so different, you know, being a girl with no legs and being adopted, it was like, no one was like missing legs or an amputee, and then on top of it was adopted. So those two things already felt like I stood out. And then when I was 12 years old, I remember really for the first time understanding what they, my parents meant when they said, oh, you're born out new Year like it's a special birthday, it comes every four years. I was like, what do you mean? I thought everyone gets a birthday every year. Like, But it was in that moment that I really understood that I don't have a birthday. So I have a birthday every four years. I remember thinking, You know, the one day my birth mom is going to be forced to think about me is on my birthday. And, you know, growing up, I was, you know, told I was adopted. I had this Russia box that I could go check out anytime I wanted. I don't look like my siblings. I'm the blonde in the family. But I think in that moment when I really understood that I didn't have a birthday until every four years where they all thought it was so cool. I was like, this is the one day and and it just skips. I don't even exist right? Like it just kind of confirmed everything I already felt about myself. Just, you know, you were unwanted, you were unloved, you have a disability, you're not even made whole, right? You're not even, you're not even a whole person. And it was hard. And I think what I thought in my head that was going to fix it was perfection, right? You know, I've talked before on my, my Instagram, but just controlling you know, how pretty could I look, right? I'm the blonde, I'm the, you know, I hide my legs and, and I wanted good skin and I wanted nice makeup and, you know, I wanted everything else because I, I felt so incomplete and not very whole. I remember on my sweet 16, just like being really sad because I was like, maybe this is the day, like she has to be thinking about me today. I was 16, which is when my birth mom had had me. So it's like this weird, like, and I always get so sad when February ninth leaves, like I love her birthday now. And if anything, I've talked to my birth mom in Russia, and she has asked me what day I celebrated my birthday on. So it kind of was really cool, just because all those years that I questioned my existence on the calendar, um, I just knew she was thinking about me. Jessica, would you feel comfortable
2: sharing about meeting your birth mom?
0: Oh, yeah. I always knew I was adopted. My parents didn't keep anything secret. And they said all the right things. Thank goodness, just that she was too young to take care of me. And she made a really tough decision and gave me up for adoption. It was part of God's plan. And I was meant to be a part of their family. And still as a kid, you're like, you still question it. You still understand exactly why you were put up for adoption. Even though you love this family, you're a part of, it's still just, it's really hard to make that connection, especially when you're just so young. So all of my life, I really wanted to meet my birth mom. I was like, so excited. I was, you know, like one day I'm going to find her And then when I really hit like teenage years, I was like, I don't really care anymore. Like, I think I'm good. And then there was like a switch um, right before the 2012 London Paralympics that I just got really curious. I think too, there's something with being adopted. You almost don't want to talk about it too much, like wanting to find your birth family in front of your family. But what I've really learned, because I've been in therapy, I've worked really hard and especially connecting with other people who are adopted, is that it is really a tragedy. Like it's such a beautiful thing for the family that's getting the baby. Well, what's happened to this little baby? You can't take away that it's gonna be a really hard thing. And even just like in Russia, the first 12 months and that connection that you make, I had to work and learn how to hug people. And I mean, there's so much stuff in Russia, like you, you just don't cry. So I seemed like a very like disengaged baby at times, I guess is what I was told. Like I just didn't really have any emotions, didn't really cry. Even hugging my mom, like, like I didn't, it's even like how it's played out today. Like hugging my parents when they leave now, like I've had to like really work through that. But anyway, going back to Russia, um, at the 2012 Paralympics is when I found out about my Russian family. I was 20 years old. I was going to come much later. I, you know, I didn't think I'd be seeing my, my Russian family on a computer screen because they went on some, it was like the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey show of like Russia and they said I was going to come in at the end. And I was like, I was sitting in Baltimore. My friend had sent it to me. She was Russian. I don't know if I said this earlier, but a Russian reporter went and found them for me. It was tough. But then about a year later, about a year later, exactly, I decided to go back to or to go to Russia to meet her. And it was, like, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And I took my little sister, Hannah. And I just remember having a lot of fear and doubt. And I'm not really a fearful person but it was just this this thought that maybe she didn't want to see me but as soon as she hugged me i just knew that like she really had a hard time forgiving herself and it was so funny right cuz all of my life i was angry with her i was upset with her for giving me up and in that moment i think i realized how much she was holding on to anger herself i'm okay like i forgive you i release whatever you're feeling like like you don't have to be upset or angry anymore but it was really special And we, I think we wrote each other yesterday, but she did marry, my birth mom and my birth father and they had three children after me. So I was the oldest and I was born Tatiana. So she did name me. And then there's Anastasia and a set of twins.
2: I asked Dr. Shannon why it's important to tell Jessica's story.
1: I think that it's important to get out there that, you know, like this isn't something that should ever slow you down. And just because... You know, you may have one less toe or one less bone in your leg, or your leg's a little shorter, or it looks a little different. Doesn't mean that you can't accomplish anything you put your mind to.
2: I asked Ms. Desiree what she wants to say to Jessica right before she jumps in the pool in Tokyo.
3: Stick to her principles in terms of, you know, what she's been preparing for in her training, what her race plans have been, what, you know, what she's been focused on the last five years into the games. One of our mantras is always don't do anything new right before the game. So, you know, stick to the tried and true. But more importantly, she needs to go out there and have fun. Competing needs to be enjoyable and it needs to be fun for the athletes. And sometimes that's more difficult the the later you get in your career. So, you know, keeping that in mind and, and having fun while you're out there. In closing,
2: I asked Jessica if there's anything else that she wants listeners to know.
0: Yeah, the success has been super cool and you know, it's amazing to win gold medals, but really, you know, any athletes out there it really is the journey. And it's the most exciting part is the days that you feel like you can't get through practice, but you have your teammates who pick you up or your coaches that you have no idea how much you appreciate them until they're not in your life anymore. Obviously setting goals are important. And I think that keeps you going. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you, you know, passionate about what you're doing. But also just enjoying the journey is like the biggest thing. One day sport, your sport, it's going to end. Like that's the craziest thing. So enjoy every single day. I think is really important.
2: Thanks for tuning into Flame Bears, the women athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. For more behind the scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Flame Bears. Massive thank you to the Harvard Kennedy School's Women in Public Policy Program and the Harvard Innovation Lab for your ongoing support. Thank you to my amazing gal group within Stanford's Galvanizer Incubator Program. Thank you to Dino Catano and Emma Minto for your ongoing support and to teammate Hyatt Serrato for your terrific work via social. We'll catch you on our next episode.